Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, where it's Monday, and we are tired, and there are no more snappy rejoinders left in our typing pause. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News, coming to you from our Los Angeles studio, and today we're playing catch-up. Last week was a rough one. Like most of you, we spent the week braced for another terrible, tragic, senseless thing to happen while still trying to make sense of all the terrible, tragic, senseless things that had already happened. And at some point during the week, we realized that the show we had started to make on Tuesday was not going to be the same show we released on Friday. We made some changes, we dropped some pieces, and we did our best to address everything that happened and was still happening in Baton Rouge, in Falcon Heights, and in Dallas. If you missed the show we released last Friday night, you should go back and listen. There's some great reporting by Marcus Ellsworth, Jane Coaston, and Anna Marie Cox, as well as powerful messages from people on the front lines of those tragedies. As is often the case during acute moments of crisis, the normal business of day-to-day life gets neglected. Dishes pile up in the sink, a full podcast worth of excellent pieces gets shelved, and we'll have another episode out on Friday that continues to address this most recent wave of violence and its ripples, but today we're going to let you hear the show we wanted to make last week. Consider it a very small stand against letting insane gunmen determine what's important. So... Today on The Stakes, we are going to hear from our resident editorial opinionator, Meredith Graves, on why you should A, fear the deep web, and B, watch her favorite TV show. Jamil Smith will take a look at the violence that erupted between white nationalists and anti-fascist activists in Sacramento, California, and how that might be a preview of what's to come in Cleveland. And Marcus Ellsworth brings us a poetic reflection on the basic human right to clean water. But first, Anna Marie Cox speaks to U.S. Army Sergeant Kennedy Ochoa about the recent decision by the Pentagon to overturn the ban on transgender men and women serving openly in the U.S. military. On June 30th, the Pentagon lifted its long-standing ban against allowing openly transgender men and women from serving in the U.S. military. The announcement was the first step in a 90-day period of review, by the end of which the Department of Defense will have produced a guidebook for military leaders and will have issued guidance to doctors and medical personnel who will now provide transition-related care to trans folks currently serving. Sergeant Kennedy Ochoa came out as trans very publicly in a New York Times feature last year, right around the time Defense Secretary Ashton Carter announced that a Pentagon working group had been tasked with laying the groundwork for a repeal of the ban. MTV News senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox spoke with Sergeant Ochoa about what the past year has been like for him on and off the base and what the future might hold for trans people who seek to serve their country openly. So we are talking about the decision to allow transgender personnel to serve openly. And is it possible to say sort of what that means for you right now? For me, uh, that means that I can serve uh, without feeling like my feet are in quicksand or stuck in quicksand or feeling like that I'm not chained and not able to serve authentically as myself. Now, um, moving forward, uh, that means I can do that. And it's just 
an incredible feeling. Like it still hasn't like hundred percent hit me. Like it'll come in waves sometimes, but, um, you know, I've been in for almost six years and, um, I actually was in before don't ask, don't tell was repealed. So at that point it felt like I was really in two closets. Um, and so finally being able to move forward is just such a surreal feeling. You said you were in two closets. So to what extent were you closeted to the people around you? Um, in both senses. Did you come out when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed in any way? No. Um, well, I, I guess before, um, when I came in, like I said, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in effect. At that time, I knew internally that I identified as somebody who is transgender. But at that time, especially where I grew up and where my hometown was, it wasn't something that was openly talked about. Um, so I had to sort of identify as a gay woman at the time. And I hadn't done like any sort of medical transition related anything at that point. Um, and, and really that was, I guess to, to put it simply, that was the safer option. It's like, well, at least people have heard of gay people. No one's really heard of being transgender before. So, and so that was the identity I had to go with, but it still didn't feel right. I felt like I was living a lie, living a lie. And when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, it's, it, it was, Great because, yes, you know, the armed forces were moving forward with equality and everything, but really all it meant for me was, okay, cool, I can I can bring somebody that I'm dating to a military function and not have to say, oh, they're my friend. Um, and that was really the only benefit that I saw for me personally um, at that time. So now that it has been announced that the ban has been repealed, it's just I don't have to to make up anything anymore. I don't have to hide anymore, you know, come up with other reasons for things. Um, and it's just an incredible feeling. So what, what extent were you, were you having to, um, pass as female at, at sort of in your military career? Were you uh, transitioning outside in your off time? Yes and no. You know, obviously we don't wear civilian attire or normal people clothes to work. We wear a uniform every day. <laughs> right. So it was, it was kind of easy to, to hide that, but um, outside of work, um, when like for social things, um, I really didn't enjoy hanging out with people I worked with because I was worried that should they see me presenting as male, they were going to put two and two together, um, even before hormones and figure me out. And, right. and I was so afraid of that happening because this is at a time where you could still be discharged. You know, I wanted to make my parents proud of me and I didn't want, and my parents are very supportive, um, of me in every way, but I didn't want that possibility to happen that they might not be. Right. Because of that, I would very seldom make plans with people outside of work because I, I didn't want somebody to say something and be a whistleblower and um, and ultimately put my career in jeopardy. And it was very isolating and painful uh, in retrospect having to do that. Were there people that already knew? I mean, what has sort of happened for you personally since then? Um, well, I have been out publicly since last year. Um, it's been about a year ago. Um, I came out in a very public way uh, through the New York Times. The New York Times published an article, and, it, I, and I believe, I may be getting my dates mixed up, but it was still at a time that you could still be discharged. But um, the Secretary of Defense had announced that he would be willing to review you know, why we were barred from service in an attempt to, I guess, I, I guess, get to the bottom of it, to put it loosely. <laughs> um, so at, at that end, you know, it was then that um, I had been approached by a journalist from the New York Times, like a, 
I want to say like a couple months before that happened. Um, and I shared my story with him and I told him, you know, I'm not ready for this to come out yet. I was very early on in my uh, medical transition. And what I didn't want to happen was that this story was going to get released and I was going to get found out and I would be told I was going, excuse me, was going to have to stop. Um, I, I didn't want that whatsoever because this is something I, at that point I had put off medically transitioning for four years. Um, I came in the military in 2010 and I didn't start hormones until 2014. So it was something that was very important to me. And I, at that point, I didn't want to wait any longer. I felt like I couldn't. And I was so afraid that if it were to get released at that time, um, it, it was going to hinder me from pursuing that any further. And, and looking back, honestly, even if I had been ready to share that, um, the week after the article came out, it came out like July 20th of last year. Um, a week after that came out, there was a memorandum that was issued saying um, all discharges were, the authority to discharge people was now raised uh, substantially higher than what it used to be. So I guess the timing worked out pretty perfectly, um, choosing to wait on top of that. Um, so I, long story short, I've been out for, in, in my unit for a long time. Everybody knows, it, and with the way my voice sounds, it's no secret either. Um, <laughs> so it, it's very easy to, uh, before they'd be like, oh, you know, he, and it's like, well, Technically, like anything in regards to like bathrooms or um, anything like that, I had to unfortunately, quote unquote, correct people and say, no, I am, I am a, uh, I am the army recognizes me as female is how I would put it. Uh -huh. And so, just seeing the look on people's faces, I could see the wheels turning um, quicker in some people than others. But, <laughs> um, but um, it, it was very. E and just, you know, the shape of my face has changed and the voice is the obvious giveaway. Right. Um, so everybody pretty much knew it wasn't a secret. And when I went to the drill sergeant academy there, I had reached out beforehand because I, it was something that I was nervous about. For those who don't know, when you come up on orders to be a drill sergeant, you have to go and basically go through boot camp all over again, but it's worse. There's, there's so much more responsibility that you have um, because you're, you're training to train your replacements mm -hmm. is basically what it comes down to. So there are a lot of additional responsibilities and things that we had to learn how to do on top of going through everything else that I went through six years ago when I came in. So um, everybody, and I was nervous. It's just like, okay, I don't want this to be one more thing that I have to worry about. And I can say um, wholeheartedly that everybody that I dealt with at the Drill Sergeant Academy was 100% professional about everything and I couldn't have asked for anything better. And I think, you know, some people might be surprised to hear that. I think the stereotype we have of the military is a fairly conservative organization. Um, but I also know my, my family, a lot of my family's in the military and my father served and he told me what he thinks is that in some ways it's easier for the military to desegregate, to um, make strides in civil rights areas in part because it is so disciplined because people do things by the book and they are trained to put sort of their personal feelings aside and act professionally. Do you think that was helpful? Um, I think so, yes. And ultimately what I observed and what several people have told me is ultimately it comes down to can you do your job? And that's how I was treated when 
my article came out with in less than 24 hours everybody on my base knew who right. at least knew my name anyway um and, and really um i had a, a previous commander of mine explain this to me as long as you can fulfill your duties and do your job to the best of your ability we all wear the same uniform as long as you do your job that's all i expect of you and is that the predominantly the the response that you've gotten from people and, and for me yes if anything negative has been said about me, I don't know about it. Do people talk to you about it at all? I mean, military is conservative and it's uh, there's, I think, a fair amount of respect for privacy. But um, this you do came out in a pretty public way. This is a public discussion. People feel OK about asking this kind of thing in a way they might not ask someone who didn't come out in The New York Times. Right. Um, I- I'm a very forthcoming person. I won't necessarily volunteer information. You know, obviously, the New York Times was the exception to that. But um, if somebody asks me something, I will answer honestly to the best of my ability. Um, If it's just asking for clarification on something, if I can help educate that person, I'm more than willing to do that. So I had a couple of people come up and talk to me, but it was more so they had never met anybody who was transgender before, and they were just curious. And nothing was said that was malicious or anything like that. It was, hey, this is really cool, and, you know, I would have... It wasn't I would have never known. It's people have a tendency to have a fear of the unknown. And from my perspective, I feel like I was maybe able to change that a little bit. I don't want to put myself up on a pedestal by any means. But, you know, when you don't know something or you don't, if there's a certain demographic or something that you don't know anything about and then you meet somebody who belongs to that, and it's like, oh, they're, they're just like me. They're just like everybody else. It takes a lot of the fear out of the equation. Right. And I think one question that people might have, again, maybe as a, because there's a stereotype of, for people who are civilians, but why would you want to join the military when you knew that you were not going to be able to serve in a way that uh, comported with your personal identity? Being in the military runs in my family. My grandparents on both sides were in. Both of my parents are veterans as well. And It was something that had always been in the back of my head. And and to be quite honest, I was working two part-time jobs in a small town in the state of North Carolina. And I I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself. I I tried the college thing and I just wasn't ready. And so it's just like, okay, well, I can't really, at that time, you know, 19, 20 years old, it's like, okay, I can't do this. What's my next option? And I knew that the military was going to be, I guess, my ticket out of that and propelling me forward in a direction that was going to give me more opportunities to do something with my life. So have you run across any people that you knew from before you transitioned and have seen you now? Yes. Uh, when I go home on leave, uh, back home to North Carolina, there are you know friends from high school that I'll see every now and then. But for the most part, because I don't really get to go home that often, uh, most of my interaction with those people is limited to Facebook or texting or, or anything like that. But those people that I have been able to reconnect with in person, um, it, they're all just amazed that, wow, like you seem like such a much happier person now. And I haven't, I can't really say there's been a specific instance where I've been met with hostility from any of those people. Wow. Even though North Carolina right now, not exactly known for being especially friendly to LGBT people. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's the top of the list of places for LGBT people to move, <laughs> but, um, you know, so what else do you want people to know 
um, what, what do you think about your experience would be something you'd want to share? I, I guess in closing, just to say for, and like I said before, I'm sure there are people who disagree with overturning the ban and who are unsure of what this will bring. We're here just like everybody else. We're here to do a job, do it to the best of our ability. And at the end of the day, we all join for different reasons, but we're here to support and defend the constitution of the United States. And that's all we want to do is to be able to have the same opportunity to do that. Well, I want to thank you for your service. And I want to thank you for, for being one of the people um, on the front line of, of a couple different battles here. I think it matters a lot to be heard from. And I think that your openness is a real um, blessing to the people around you. I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there that feel like they think they don't know someone that's transgender. And so a willingness to talk about it, I think you're helping a lot of people. Well, good. I'm, I'm certainly glad to hear that. And uh, again, thank you for the opportunity uh, to share my story. That was MTV's Anna Marie Cox speaking to U.S. Army Drill Sergeant Kennedy Ochoa. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, you'll be able to hear a bit more from him. The USA Network's award-winning drama Mr. Robot is a paranoid dive into government surveillance, the deep web, and the tenuous nature of personal privacy on an interconnected planet. If our own Meredith Graves is to be believed, it's also the best thing on TV. Someone always takes advantage of society as it falls apart. A government of the people doesn't exist. Intentions don't change the world. Not Occupy sloganeering, not even anyone chilling for the Sanders camp, but promotional tweets from whoever runs social media from Mr. Robot. So for those of you not getting your gorgeously executed television dramas from the USA Network, I know, but stay with me here, Mr. Robot is the best thing that's ever been on television. Or at least the best thing since Star Trek. Not counting the short-lived Channel 4 series Utopia. Anyway. A lot of Mr. Robot's charm comes from the fact that it unselfconsciously replicates films from the 80s and 90s that celebrate the ability to use a computer really, really well, with a specific eye toward outcasts and underdogs who use their skills to save the world from evil corporations and governments hell-bent on global domination. They turn computer nerds into action heroes, and big banks into Biff Tannen. Dramatic music, jargon-heavy dialogue, and references to obscure programming languages, lots of cutaway shots to green command text on black screens, and sometimes the plucky hero even gets the girl, just because he or she is good at computers. Which means Rami Malek is maybe the contemporary Matthew Lillard, which blows my mind, but anyway. It's great timing for all of this, because over the last decade, some remarkable events have changed the public's concept of what role computers might play in a revolution. Suddenly, the average person, who now carries a computer in their pocket everywhere they go, who checks into locations and uses a GPS to find their place in the world, who goes on dates with and gets rides from and has housework done by strangers they find on the internet, is concerned with what the government can and can't see you doing on Facebook. From Snowden and Chelsea Manning to the Hollywood email hack to the role social media has played in anti-government dissent worldwide, more people than ever are thinking critically about the fact that we've handed control of the world over to an unfeeling sequence of ones and zeros. 
In the lead-up to Mr. Robot's second season, which premieres July 13th, there's been some great critical writing published about what season one did right in terms of the aforementioned phenomenon of technology warship. Even if we're only looking at the span of time since season one ended, which is almost a full year, it's obvious the way we look at computers, hacking, and security culture has changed dramatically. I mean, consider everything happening right now. Everything we can see, anyway. Guccifer 2.0, hacking the DNC, the NRA accidentally taking down 38,000 websites after being totally owned by a parody site, alleged Silk Road boss Ross Ulbricht teaching GED physics class and in jail where he's locked away for life, and debates over email servers that could derail every debate for the remainder of the presidential election. And seeing as previews for season two reveal an incredibly convincing and well-acted cameo from President Obama, one can only guess how Elliot and company will deal with security culture as it pertains to the upcoming election. We've already seen the dude literally use computers to cause a power surge at a maximum security prison, freeing dozens of inmates. What makes you think Elliot couldn't instantaneously erase a hypothetical Trump regime registry of Muslim Americans? How about permanently altering the birth certificate and existing legal documents to make life ever so slightly easier for trans characters like the White Rose? Will season two end with Elliot living in an airport or an embassy with only his... Mm. Spoiler alert, if you haven't finished season one, pause this podcast right now. With only his imaginary dad for company? Regardless of whether we're discussing fictional plot points or very real ones, in the words of whatever genius runs the show's Twitter account, it's time to face the consequences of changing the world. That was MTV News host Meredith Graves on the new season of Mr. Robot. Season 2 premieres July 13th on the USA Network, though with a little bit of internetting on your own, you can find a very official, unofficial leak of the episode online now. You're listening to The Stakes. I'm Holly Anderson. On June 26th, a group of anti-immigration, white nationalists, calling themselves the Traditionalist Workers' Party, held a rally outside the state capitol building in Sacramento, California. They were there to promote their message of faith, family, and folk, which is a very polite way to describe a platform of white supremacy, ethnic segregation, and a net-zero immigration policy. The TWP were greeted in Sacramento by a coalition of counter-protesters led by the organizations Antifa Sacramento and BAMN, by any means necessary. Both groups believe in a violent, confrontational form of direct action and came prepared to shut the rally down. The ensuing fracas between the TWP and the counter-protesters resulted in multiple injuries on both sides and at least six stabbings. And both groups plan on attending the Republican National Convention in Cleveland later this month. What could go wrong? MTV News senior national correspondent Jamil Smith spoke to Ryan Lenz, senior writer for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project and editor of its Hate Watch blog, about the confrontation in Sacramento, the history of the traditionalist Workers' Party, and what might happen in Cleveland. Ryan, I want to start with Sacramento. What happened there And why does it matter so much? Uh, A group that was started by Matthew Heimbach, uh, a young and rising white nationalist, had come to protest immigration. um, And his group was confronted by uh, what sounds like hundreds of anti-fascist protesters um, who have uh, have in the past been quite aggressive in the way that they handle 
known racists in public demonstrations. And uh, what happened was essentially a melee, um, a very bloody melee uh, between uh, two sides on a very contentious issue. You know, it's worth noting, though, that um, this sort of this sort of uh, effort of using violence to silence um, any given speech or violence in the furtherance of any given ideology, for that matter. I mean, I think, you know, we at the Southern Poverty Law Center condemn it, and I think a lot of other people do as well. So what happened in Sacramento was really, I think, a microcosm, uh, a focal point, like a microcosm look at at a greater national dialogue, a national issue uh, of contention that's happening right now in the midst of this presidential election. We have, in America right now, um, political candidates that have taken issues that have long been pushed by white nationalist and white supremacist organizations, taking them far outside of the, you know, of, of the shadowy fringe of far-right politics and put them front and center. Now, this has energized and animated the radical right in the United States in ways that has not happened in many years. Can you describe a little bit about what's happening in Europe and how it bears similarity to what's happening here? As far-right politics have risen in prominence and gained momentum and power, the idea of, of, of this influx of, of Syrian refugees has been cast as sort of a Muslim invasion. It's one of the issues that has, that has driven a lot of far-right groups, both in America and in Europe, this idea that, that, that Islam is not a religion, but rather a political ideology intent on, on, on running roughshod over the democratic institutions across the Western world. So in Europe... Britain decided that they wanted to hold a referendum to see if they would pull away from the EU based on a lot of issues, but primary among them was this idea that the influx of Muslim immigrants, uh, or, or immigrants from the Middle East at that, because not all of them are Muslims, would change the ethnic character of Europe in a way that was, was fundamentally detrimental to what it has, it has always been. In other words, like Europe would no longer be white. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an idea that, that animates uh, racists in, in the United States as well. This idea that immigration or unchecked immigration policies are fundamentally, uh, fundamentally altering the ethnic character of the United States. It's been an idea that has animated the so-called nativist movement, which is this, uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, the, the militias uh, and, and the vigilantes who patrol uh, the borders of the southern border of the United States and are, are returning to that border. And this idea that, you know, that, that they have to protect these quote unquote white homelands from quote unquote invaders that are, that are, that are threatening white dominance. You know, there are a lot of reasons, of course, why this is an issue, uh, for the far right. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. Census Bureau has predicted that by 2050, white Americans will be, uh, an ethnic minority in the United States for the first time. Now, well, that is ultimately uh, a reflection of the change of the, of the changing world in which we live in. You know, the reality that you know that we've got um, more open borders than we've ever had, uh, and, and more welcoming immigration policies, and more welcoming policies of, of multiculturalist, multicultural approaches for for the racist or a white nationalist or a white supremacist. What that means is whites are losing, and whites are 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 no longer you know, the only power brokers at the table. And that's a terrifying reality for them. Getting back to Sacramento, you spoke with this organizer, Heimbach. I first interviewed Matthew Heimbach about three or four years ago, and I met with him in 
uh, Southern Indiana um, when he was just starting the Traditionalist Youth Network, which is the student organization that that the rally. Uh, there's the Traditionalist Youth Network and the Traditionalist Workers Party, Worker Party. Um, at the time, it was just the first the first group, and I sat down with him to talk about it. You know, and in the in the years since, I've had a number of interviews with him. So he almost always takes my phone call. Not always, but almost always. And um, uh, the pro- these protests that that that, that Heimbach's group has been holding across the country are becoming increasingly contentious and violent. Matthew Heimbach, it's worth remembering, was the the bearded man caught on video shoving and screaming at racial epithets at at a, at a Black Lives Matter protest at a Trump rally in Louisville earlier this year. He was also the, the man who was who was um, who was very famously photographed. Swinging an Orthodox cross at a, at a counter protester on the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. So the protest is these protests are ultimately, Matthew would argue, um, to bring awareness to the plight of white Americans and to highlight problems with the you know with U.S. immigration policy or uh, or whatever. It does beg the question though, like. Is there an attempt, isn't an attempt to provoke a response, to, to throw his group into the news, or is that just happening you know, ancillary from his intentions? Now, you know, my heart skipped a beat when uh, I read the bit about Cleveland, about the possibility of them going to the Republican National Convention, because that's my hometown. And I certainly don't want, you know, on a personal note, um, a bunch of neo-Nazis coming to Cleveland for any reason, let alone to you know potentially mix up with uh, people who are protesting the convention. Can you tell me about what you expect to happen? I don't think anybody knows what's really going to happen. You know, it's it's still up in the air uh, regarding who's going to be there, what groups are going to be there, um, and I would hesitate to say that it's going to go bad or, or or well because I don't know. But Heimbach told me that his group. Uh, TWP, the Traditionalist Worker Party, intends to be at the convention to make sure that delegates inside understand uh, and, and, and hear out um, the, the position of white nationalists. Now, this, I think, speaks to just the nature of the political climate in which we're living. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that a racist, someone who stands shoulder to shoulder with groups like the Aryan Terror Brigade, who has avowed? Who has? Who has? Uh, who has? Who has been with groups like the League of the South um, for years, which is a which is a Southern nationalist or a neo Confederate group that advocates for a second Southern secession, and furthermore, increasingly in recent years, has become uh, overtly anti-Semitic. What does it say that a group like Matthew Heimbach's Traditionalist Worker Party feels that they can sway the political process in their favor? Well, I think it speaks to just the nature of, of, of what uh, a Trump candidacy might mean. Donald Trump has, since the beginning of his, of his mm-hmm. candidacy, has energized and animated the radical right in ways that we haven't seen in many, many years. You know, and why, and why, why is that so? Well, if you start a campaign declaring that you're going to build a wall on the southern border of the United States of Mexico to keep out quote-unquote rapists, and you follow that up many months later, by announcing a policy to ban all Muslim immigration into the United States uh, based on religion, you know, a, a, a thorough violation by all accounts um, uh, of every constitutional 
difference of what we have, you know, of course Matthew Heimbach is going to show up at that convention because for the first time in, in, in his lifetime probably and in many years for, for those of us who are older, uh, you know, his, his, his voice has, has, has gravitas to it and, and weight. And furthermore, what he says is being echoed within, uh, within, you know, within the convention itself. Is there a large audience amongst millennials for that kind of message that Heimbach is selling? Well, I think that, that that's sort of an impossible question to answer uh, in some respects. Anecdotally, of course, but, uh, but to actually say definitively yes, that becomes a little more cumbersome and difficult. But I think there are barometers that you can look at to sort of gauge at least, you know, how widely these messages are received and, and just what, you know, what is happening. You know, if you look at places online, for example, where younger people tend to congregate, um, places like Reddit, or, or for that matter, you know, uh, websites like the Daily Stormer. These places um, have been and 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 and, and are, you know, cesspools of, of of hate and vitriol that 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 are actually disgusting to look at. So if you recognize that Reddit is most widely used by younger people, and that Reddit is, for I'm just using Reddit as an example, has has places where long discussions go on about about you know the nature of black people or just these vile racist streets i think you can say that obviously uh, his message has an audience and then if you want to also talk about just how just how, how widely that message might be disseminating look at someone like like dylan roof or, or you know who a year ago walked into a baptist church in south carolina and killed nine people because they were black he was radicalized online so I think if you look at the confluence of like the Reddit reality um, and, and what we've seen from people who have, who have committed killings based on racist ideologies, yeah, this is happening. Now, militant mass direct action is what, you know, the one of the organizers of the anti-fascist protest called what they did. What do you feel like militant mass direct action against racism, against fascism looks like in 2016? Is it is it going to look like that or is it look? different, you know, based upon what you've uh, reported? Well, I mean, I think militant mass direct action, you know, is pretty self-explanatory on what it is. And, you know, uh, again, let me reiterate a point I said earlier. You know, there is no place, I believe, in the 21st century democracy for violence as a way to, as a violence as a way forward. If militant direct action is uh, attacking people who disagree with you uh, with, you know, with weapons, with bottles, with knives, I mean, that's that is nothing anyone should should commend, but I will say that that you know that without a doubt the political spectrum, the political polarization in this country right now is such that groups are finding both on the left and more importantly on the right that violence is the way uh, is the way forward, and and there there are characteristics to this violence that's in, that are important to note. The radical right is is by far more violent than the radical left. Um, it has been for a long time. Um, we, uh, two years ago, did a study here uh, I, uh, that was authored by me and a, and a colleague where we looked at the number of, of ideologically motivated violent attacks that had either been carried out or, 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 or thwarted by law enforcement over a five-year period. The five-year period was, was from 2009 to 2014. The reason we chose that period was because that was a period during which the Department of Homeland Security sort of stepped away from its efforts to to look at the domestic terrorist threat from Americans, from you know, from generally from white Christian Americans. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that every thirty-four days, 
an attack was either carried out or thwarted by law enforcement for five years on average. Furthermore, if you look at the numbers of like the, you know, the characteristics of those attacks, by and large, most of them were, were with firearms or small or small explosives, which uh, which says something and I'll get to in a, in, a, in a minute here. But more importantly, if you look at how many people carried them out, 74% of those attacks between that five-year period were carried out by a single individual. If you add a second individual, like a father and a son, uh, you know, husband and wife, a brother and sister, something like that, it climbs to 90%. So that's terrifying because what that means is that means that militant direct action coming from the radical right is existing on, on a lone wolf basis. These are people that are not projecting or forecasting their intentions ever before they do it. Um, you might see them online in some racist message boards, but in terms of like declaring they're going to attack or talking to anyone else that they're going to do something, that doesn't happen. We've seen these groups grow you know, exponentially during the Obama era. Are we going to see this kind of motivation, this kind of resentment feeding these groups? I mean, especially if Trump loses. Well, um, Heimbox, to return, to return to Sacramento, I raised that question to him as well. Because, you know, a lot of my journalist friends have asked that question, um, you know, on the Twitter feeds and in private conversations. What happens if, you know, if, if the answer to the white nationalist, white supremacist cries doesn't come through? Um, does that mean that people will feel disaffected and lash out? Or does that mean that they'll, that they'll consider the political process a sham and be angrier? Um, I think what's, what, what it ultimately means is, like Heimbach said, Win or lose, nationalism is on the rise. And I think you need to look no farther than the Brexit vote in Britain. You know, these types of policies and positions are spreading across Europe. There's something like seven or eight countries in Europe right now, prominent far-right parties. So if Trump wins and brings and turns the, uh, turns the GOP into, you know, some, some American counterpart to, you know, let's say, you know, the National Front in France, or uh, if he if he loses, what 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 becomes of all the white nationalists who become animated as a result of it, or the people who become white nationalists because of it? Um, Heimbach says it's good either way, and and I think there's probably some truth to that from from that perspective. That that if 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 Trump loses, what he's done is he's brought white nationalists with nothing but vile racist messages into the political discourse. Mm-hmm and given them a sense of legitimacy and self-determination and destiny that they didn't have before. That was MTV's Jamil Smith speaking to Ryan Lenz of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Finally, in Friday's edition of The Stakes, we heard Marcus Ellsworth, MTV News political writer and poet-in-residence, conducting interviews from Louisiana. Today, Marcus returns to spoken word with a reflection on the politics of water access and the spate of dangerous lead levels in local water supplies. It's an insidious issue that doesn't suit the news cycle, but we know that high lead drinking water can devastate the brain development of the children, always poor and often minorities, who are forced to drink it because of government incompetence and corruption. Water carries so much. Water carries our history. Water carries all that we have given to it. Lead from our legacy of aging pipes, arsenic from coal ash seeping into the ground, island nations of garbage, whispered litanies of chemicals we are too careless to hear. Water carries our future. 
like rust-orange water filling jugs in flint. But don't think it takes clouds in the glass to make water not water anymore, not with acceptable levels of lead and industrial waste we hope isn't leaking. Water carries our fears. Is it clean or mercurial or acidic or so caustic it leaches metal from pipes to deposit it in you? Water carries our excuses. Businesses might be hurt by having to pay for their mistakes. The government doesn't have the funds to bring life back to our lakes. But don't raise taxes and lighten up on those corporate fines. They don't need accountability, only their pennies, nickels, and dimes. Water carries our regret. Hey, don't worry, there's a chance you're not one of the millions of Americans who might possibly be drinking a little bit of uranium or a smattering of sewage or slightly more heavy metals than a doctor would recommend. Making sure our water doesn't carry poison into anyone's home would cost us so much. Billions, possibly trillions, while ignoring the problem and raising a glass will only cost us millions. Of people. That was MTV's Marcus Ellsworth, and this was our belated edition of The Stakes. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back to our regularly scheduled program later this week. So I was going to ask if you can give me your best drill sergeant voice. If you're, oh I, gosh! If, <laughs> can, you give me, can you give me a good like drop and give me twenty? Like, what's your go-to? What do you? What do you? What are you going to be saying? Oh, um, well, I have I have some ideas, but uh, oh gosh, hold on, let me let me think of something real quick. Because <laughs> like I've been practicing and training for this, but I never thought I'd be put on the spot just yet. Okay. Um, okay. Well, you can think for a second, but I think we need to hear it. Okay, I might have to take one earbud out and put the microphone a little bit further away from me. Yeah, I think you should. Go ahead. Don't, we don't don't hurt my ears. I, I'm not planning to. The push up, starting position, move, in cadence, exercise, one, two, three. All right, there you go. I love it. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.